We want to uh, pick up with our study of Revelation. We finished with chapter 17 last time, so we'll begin in chapter 18. I'll remind you that the 17th chapter spoke in uh, some detail to explain the 14th chapter where it talked about the destruction of the harlot, the great religious system that was in place, that it will be in place during the tribulation period. Now, it's a system that the Bible speaks to having influenced all the six great empires of the world and will have a great influence in the Antichrist empire as well. But um, but it might do us well to kind of back up and look at it from a big picture standpoint. This is the part of Revelation I have the hardest time with. What I mean by that is I don't have a hard time believing what it says. But I have a hard time identifying who it's talking about. We have a tendency to look at the things that the Bible tells us about the end and try to pinpoint or identify this or that. And people have done that with the Antichrist. And doing that with the uh, religious system, some people have theorized or surmised that it might be the church at Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. But I think if we look back at the uh, the history of these empires that made up the beast system in the, in previous generations, I think we see a different picture. At least I do. For example, we know in the Egyptian empire that they worshipped all kinds of gods. They had a god for the sun, a god for the Nile, a god for just about anything and everything. And idol worship was rampant. We know the same thing is true in the Greek Empire. They worshipped all kinds of gods and we know a little bit about what they did to our understanding or knowledge of mythology, Greek mythology. And idol worship was rampant then as well. Same thing is true for the Roman Empire. They worshipped a multiplicity of gods and sacrificed to those gods. Many times human sacrifices were made. And idol worship was a big deal there. I don't see that same thing taking place in our present day world. And when it talks about the the great city of Babylon that's fallen, as we've spoken to before, the reason that the beast system and therefore the religious system is called Babylon is because it was under the Babylonian Empire that Daniel received his vision or Nebuchadnezzar received his vision, Daniel received the interpretation thereof that identified the beast system to us to begin with. It wasn't the beginning of the beast system. It was just the point where God revealed it to his people. And so for that reason, it's called Babylon rather than Egypt where it first began or Assyria or Rome or or one of the other names of the great empires. For that reason, it might suggest, in my limited thinking, it might suggest that there's a period of time between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation. I grew up Southern Baptist, 
And Southern Baptists believed then. I don't know what they believe now. But Southern Baptists believed then very strongly that if the rapture happened on Saturday, then Sunday began the tribulation. Well, they could be right. But there's nothing in the Bible that that identifies it has to be that way. We know that the Antichrist uses the religious system for the first half of the tribulation. Then at the the midpoint of the tribulation, the judgment of God comes upon this system and it's destroyed by the Antichrist using military power, the military power of ten nations that gather themselves to him. And he declares himself as God openly in the temple at Jerusalem. Well, there is no temple at Jerusalem today. So somebody's going to have to build a temple pretty quick. For the Antichrist to use the religious system to rise to power. So that might be an indication, and I I wish I had all the answers. But it might be an indication that there's a period of time, maybe several years, between the rapture of the church and the tribulation beginning. If that were true, the world would certainly be looking for some kind of explanation for why the church is gone. The church, the, the world would certainly be looking for some kind of explanation for the rapture and the turmoil that it brings upon the world. And whenever people don't have a legitimate explanation or God's explanation that they're unwilling to accept, they always come up with their own ideas about the supernatural and so forth. My thinking on this, and this is just a suggestion, like I said, I don't have the answers, but my thinking on this would be if the religions of the world or some new religion that we don't know of at this point in time is used as an explanation for the rapture of the church and the things that would be yet to come. We're given a place. There's no church. There's no body of Christ. There's no power of God resident on the earth in mankind to stop it. I guess the point I'm trying to make is simply this. What would this world look like? The Bible says that the only reason the Antichrist can't rise up now and start his stuff is because of the presence of the church. Well, what would the world look like if the church was gone for five years? I don't think anybody could argue that things are accelerating in the previous couple of decades much greater and much greater and much faster pace than they ever did in earlier in our lifetimes. If you turn the clock back 20 years and said that this is what the world will look like 20 years from now, I don't know that any of us would have been able to accept that. Well, the only thing that's holding things back, or let me say it this way, the only thing that's keeping things from 
accelerating even faster is the presence of the church. So what would the world look like in five years, ten years? Without the presence of the church, the restraining or the withholding power in place. That's the only thing that makes sense to me when you look at Revelation chapter 18 and see the description of the world's religious system and the destruction thereof. With that in mind, let's start in chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, after the destruction of the harlot, the world's religious system, after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power. You ever notice none of the angels are spoken of as having little power? And I saw an angel fly through the heavens and he was a weakling. Can't ever find that. Having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory. Now let me make another comment here and to bring something to your attention. There is not one angel that has greater glory than the least of man. Did you hear me? The angels are not created in God's class of being. Man is. So when you see these things about angels, don't just get your mind on the angels and think, wow, what's that going to be like? Realize that they're not in your class of being. The Bible says you'll rule over angels. Well, it wouldn't make sense for someone of lesser glory to rule over somebody with greater glory, would it? And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen. Talking about the religious system. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils. And the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich with the abundance of her delicacies, or that word means luxuries. Now we know this is the same system that was in place in Egypt, Persia, Babylon, Greek, Rome, and then there will be the case in the resurrected Roman Empire, the Empire of the Antichrist. Verse 4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. What are the people of God doing associated with that? Can't be talking about the church. Church is already gone. It's got to mean the. It's got to be a reference to the Jews. But remember, one of the signs that Jesus said would be prevalent at the end was deception. Take heed that no man deceive you. A lot of people will be deceived by the world's religious system. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she has rewarded you and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to the double. How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously so much torment and sorrow give her for she saith in her heart I sit a queen and am no widow and you shall see no sorrow 
Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. This is the ten nations, the military might of the ten nations used by the Antichrist against her. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. Standing afar off for the fear of torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all fine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and of iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. I don't know of any place on the face of the earth today that fits that category, do you? <clears throat> and the fruits of that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. And saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, second time it says that. For in one hour, so great riches has come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off. And cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein we were made, wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour is she made desolate. The third time it says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth. For by thy sorceries. Might be an indication of occult power. For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints. And of all that were slain upon the earth. Well as I said I can't pinpoint any city or region, or territory, or even any religion that fits that category. So it might be you decide for yourself or wander along with me. It might be that something is developed and created after the church is gone. 
One thing that is undeniable is that the, the devil, who is symbolized as the dragon in the, the book of Revelation, uses two vehicles to exercise control over the power and to do his work. One is government and the other is religion. Now one thing I think that might bear notice is that the false prophet is not the leader of the world's false religions. The false prophet is just the mouthpiece for the Antichrist. The false prophet is destroyed in a different way and he he even rises up in uh, agreement with the Antichrist against the destruction of the great harlot system of false religions. We know that at the half point of the, the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist proclaims himself as God, which means the destruction of the harlot system has to take place during the first half of the tribulation, probably right there toward the, the midpoint. Because it wouldn't make sense for the Antichrist to use the world's religious system in an attempt to solidify his power and it still be in place when he proclaims himself as God. These must be events that take place side by side. He destroys the religious system and then proclaims himself as God. Now the story shifts a little bit in chapter 19 to what's going on in heaven. If you've wondered what you're going to be doing, here's the explanation. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore. So that tells us it's the half point of tribulation. Which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye servants, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor unto him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. Now let's put a time on this. We know that the judgment of the great whore has taken place, so that's got to be the midpoint of the tribulation. But it speaks of the great multitude, which is raptured at the midpoint of the tribulation as well. We know that the 144,000 are raptured five months after the midpoint of the tribulation. They're still on the earth when the locusts are here operating. And the Bible tells us that they operate for exactly five months. So almost at the four, year, four years into the tribulation period, we see the great multitude. We see the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who have joined the church in heaven. And all of these are involved in and participating in the marriage supper of the Lamb. I wonder if we're going to be aware of what's going on in the, on the earth when we're there. 
It may be that those of us that know anything about the book of Revelation. Remember Jesus said, blessed are they that readeth and keepeth the words. Maybe in heaven we'll be talking to each other saying, I wonder what's happening now. What day is this? Verse 8. And to her, speaking to the church, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen to that. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant. And of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, I call you to remember how that when you were unsaved, you were carried away with these dumb idols. Talking about how people were involved in idol worship prior to their salvation. He said, I give you to know by the Spirit of God that no man speaking by the Holy Ghost can call Jesus accursed. And then he went further and said, and no man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Ghost. Well, Let's think about what he's saying. Anybody, you could teach a parrot to say Jesus is Lord. So he can't mean that it's impossible for somebody to say the words Jesus is Lord. What is he saying therefore? He's saying when the Holy Spirit is in operation, when the Holy Spirit is manifesting himself and inspiring someone to speak, he can't call Jesus cursed and he can only declare that Jesus is the righteous son of God. This is what John is saying, delivering the message from the angel when he says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Remember further that Paul said that you may all prophesy and that by course, one by one. In other words, it's telling us that the Holy Ghost can and will inspire anybody and everybody in the body of Christ on whatever level, great or small, to testify that Jesus is Lord. That's going to be number, the number one work of the Holy Ghost in every believer. Is through their lives, through their words, and through their actions. To testify that Jesus is Lord. That's our job. You don't have to preach it. You don't have to know how to, some program of witnessing. But that's the work of the Holy Ghost in every believer. To testify that Jesus is Lord. Verse 11, and I saw heaven opened. That's going to shift back to the earth. And I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Paul said that Jesus received a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. 
Notice verse 13. And he was clothed in a vesture or a garment dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. Let me talk to you about this vesture or this garment dipped in blood. You and I don't have that garment. Our garments, the Bible says, is fine linen. White as snow, which is the righteousness of the saints. Why does Jesus have a garment dipped in blood? The blood that it would be dipped in is his own. Why would he have a garment dipped in blood? Why does he just not have a righteous, fine linen garment like the rest of us? Because Jesus had to be born again by his own blood. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's not talking about physical death. The wages of sin is spiritual death. The Bible furthermore says Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, the first begotten from the dead, and the firstborn among many brethren. Well, firstborn from what death? He wasn't the firstborn from physical death. There were people in the Old Testament that were raised from physical death. Jesus raised Lazarus from physical death. Well, if it's not physical death, what death was he the firstborn from? Spiritual death. What was he born again by? Same thing as you and I are. By the precious blood of the Lamb. Jesus wears an eternal garment. Signifying his death, burial and resurrection. Signifying his sacrifice and the shedding of his blood. I think that's significant. See folks, we don't have a different new birth than Jesus has. We have the same new birth. I know it's hard for some people to... to think in terms of Jesus being born again because somehow or another they think that if he died spiritually then that takes away from the fact that he was God. But it doesn't. It just magnifies the fact that he surrendered himself to his father, put himself into his father's hands. That's the last thing that he said when he was on the cross. He said, Father, into thy hands I come in my spirit. What's he doing? He's finally relinquishing the opportunity to come down from the cross on his own power. Remember Jesus said, if I wanted to, I could call a legion of angels to get me down from this thing. He relinquished that opportunity. He relinquished that power when he committed his hands and committed his spirit into the hands of God. And so for three days in the heart of the earth, in the lowest regions of hell, he suffers the price and the penalty for man's sins. But oh, thank God there came a moment in time when God said, that's enough. The price is paid. The spirit of life came back upon Jesus and he was raised from the dead, the firstborn from spiritual death. Nobody had ever been come back from spiritual death before. Jesus was the firstborn. But the even better news is he was the firstborn among many. It means you and me.
I remember as a kid hearing stories about the nail print in Jesus' hands and the nail hole in his feet. And somebody said somewhere along the way that Jesus would have those nail prints in his hands and his feet for all of eternity for us to see. But folks, there's going to be something even more for us to see, and that is the garment that's dipped in blood for all of eternity. Every time we look at Jesus, we're going to be reminded of why we're able to be righteous before him. Verse 13 again. And he was clothed with a garment dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. Who do you think those are? That's you. Better learn to ride. And the armies which were in heaven. Remember Jesus said that the son of man when he comes in, in not for the church. But when he comes in glory and in power shall gather his elect from the four corners of the, the from four winds of the earth, not the four corners. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Let me say it again. I'll get it right. He said he shall call his elect, gather his elect from the four winds of heaven, not the four corners of the earth. You're already in heaven. You've been enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then the time comes, some three and a half, maybe a little less than three and a half years later. And you'll come with him as an army. Not as a family, as an army. To execute righteousness on the earth. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That indicates to us, folks, that not everybody's going to die on the day of Armageddon, or at the battle of Armageddon. That there'll be nations that did not take the mark of the beast, people left on the earth, that Jesus will rule over with our help for a thousand years. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. That's the battle of Armageddon. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains. And the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses. And of them that sit on them. And the flesh of all men both free and bond. Both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. And their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Now who would this be? This would be the military forces of the Antichrist. It would be the 200 million man army from the east. And whoever else is thrown in there. Their lot with the Antichrist and the military strength. And the beast was taken. That's the Antichrist himself. And with him the false prophet. That wrought miracles before him. With which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. And them that worshipped his image. These were both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. 
his seven-year leadership is gone. And the remnant were slain with, him, with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. This is speaking to the plague that Zechariah 14.12 talks to or identifies where the flesh melts off a people's face and their bones. The Bible tells us in another place in Revelation that the blood was up to the bridles of the horses for a 200 square mile geographical territory in one hour. One moment of time, God destroys his enemies. Now, let me say again, I don't think we can overemphasize it. If, if one, of the, um, one of the most significant things for me about the book of Revelation is to know where we are in time. I mean, if we... It'd be a whole lot easier for God to just say, I'm going to pour out plagues upon the earth, take you to heaven and pour out plagues upon the earth for seven years. But don't worry, you'll be safe. Well, that'd do it for me. That's all I'd need to know. But the book of Revelation gives us a lot of things in detail and says some things over and over and over again. For me, the significance of that is for us to identify where we are on God's timeline. What more important thing is there to know than that? Wouldn't you agree? Well, if we want to know where we are on God's timeline, I think it serves us well to pay attention to the things that the Bible tells us that the devil does and the way he does them. As I said earlier, it is an undeniable fact that the devil throughout history, throughout the history of mankind, has used two main vehicles or methods to do his work in the earth. The first is through government. And the second is through false religion. Now why does the Bible spend so much time telling us about the destruction of the harlot? Even more time on the false religions, the destruction of the false religions than it does the destruction of the beast system. The beast system is just wiped out when God, when Jesus wins at the Battle of Armageddon in a very short period of time. But why does it spend so much time telling us about the destruction of the religious system of the earth? There must be something there he wants us to see. And again, it'd be easy for him just to summarize real quickly and be done with the story. And all the false religions of the world were destroyed. Why does it go into such detail about the luxuries, the wealth, the silver and the gold, the buildings, and so forth, the merchandise? Why does it go into so much detail about that? Remember the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. A lot of people misquote that and say that money is the root of all evil. But that's not what it says. It says it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Well, apparently the love of money is very much attached to the false religions of the world. 
I think that's one reason perhaps why some people look at the Roman Catholic Church and say, well, they put more emphasis on Mary and the saints than they seem to do Jesus. And look at the wealth of the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe this is them. Folks, there's got to be something more than that. If the Roman Catholic Church, if the city of Rome were destroyed, would it fit that, category, would it fit that description in Revelation 18? Not in my thinking. So there's got to be something that's greater than that in place during the seven years of the tribulation period. Perhaps the reason that it gets such a foothold in the earth and in the people of the earth, even the Jews, is that it's had time to grow and develop since the church is gone. I'm not sure how these things work. But it's interesting to me that right in the middle of the things that we don't have the answers for, it tells us about the church being in heaven and the great victory that Jesus wins when he comes to the earth riding on a white horse just like you and me. Think to God's original plan. The Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. Before God ever made the heavens and the earth, before he ever made the world that once was that turned into chaos through the work of the enemy, before he recreated the earth in the Genesis 1 account, before he ever made man to put him in the middle of the earth that he recreated, God had a plan. And that plan was that he would destroy his enemies, all those that rose up against him, and he would provide a place for you and me as an eternal family. Everything that's happened in this earth from the creation of man forward has been to further that end. Everything that's taken place, every supernatural thing, every miraculous thing that's taken place on the earth was to fulfill his one desire and that is to have a place for you in heaven for eternity. The devil's been trying to play chess with God for thousands of years. He's been moving his pieces on the board. And there have been times, particularly when Jesus went to the cross, that he thought that he won the game. The problem is God can't lose. wonder what that marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be. used to think it would be southern fried chicken and biscuits and gravy. I eat a little different now than I used to. Whatever it is, it's a significant event that God's looking forward to. It's a time when all of his family is gathered unto himself. The only people that we know of that won't be there at that point in time are the two witnesses left on the earth. Outside of that, 
Everybody in God's family is gathered together. The great marriage of the Lamb. Whatever that's going to be, I'm sure it's going to be better than we could ever imagine. More than we could suppose or even hope for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great plan of redemption. Thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. Lord, we look at things that are going on in our lives. And so often we get overly concerned. But just if you've had the whole earth, the whole universe held in the palm of your hand, upholding all things by the word of your power, so also do you hold us in your hand. Just as it's impossible for one part of your word, one smallest part of your word to fail to come to pass concerning your plan for the end, even so is it impossible for even the smallest part of your word to fail on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that we are everything that you said we are. We can do everything you said we can do. We can be everything you said that we can be. According to the power of your word. Lord we rest in you. We lean back. And trust in you. With great assurance. With great confidence. Maybe with fear in our emotions. But with faith in our hearts. We trust you Lord. We trust you to make good your word to us and for us. We trust you to bring forth your plan for us in this life. We commit our future to you, Lord. Lord, we don't just ask you to do with us what you want to do. More importantly than that, we ask you to help us to be who you've made us to be in Christ. Let the world see Jesus in us, Lord. Let the world see the love of God in our lives. That's what we want, Father. We want our lives to be the testimony of Jesus. Not just our words. But let us be like Jesus himself. Who lived according to everything that he spoke. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around. If you're here this morning, it would say, I don't know Jesus. I can never point to a point in time where I ever asked him to come into my heart to make me new. I don't know for sure if I died today what would happen to me.
Thank God the Bible says you can know. The Bible says that if you're willing to believe that God sent Jesus to the earth and just confess him from your heart as your Lord and Savior to receive the sacrifice that he paid for you by the words of your mouth you can be made new inside you can be made a new person from within if you're here this morning and don't know Jesus and don't want to spend another day without him heads are bowed and eyes are closed nobody's looking around we just simply want to pray for you we want to lead you in the prayer that will bring you into the family of God if you would like for us to do that would you lift your hand right where you are just by raising your hand you're asking for prayer God will do the rest he'll make you a part of his family he'll forgive you of your sin see somebody had to pay the price for sin if you don't accept Jesus payment for it you have to pay it yourself but thank God he paid it for you anyone anywhere by lifting your hand would say pray for me I want to make Jesus my Lord well alright I hope that means we're all part of his family how many of you are born again something to be glad about amen amen well let's all stand let's just lift our hands and thank him for his goodness Lord, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. We thank you for the redemptive work of Jesus. We thank you for making a place for us in your family. Thank you for your great plan for us, the church, in these last days. We declare there will be days of glory and days of power. Father, we thank you for the precious fruit of the earth for bringing in multitudes of people into your family before the end comes we thank you Father for a demonstration of your spirit and a manifestation of your power to cause people to know that Jesus is alive thank you so much Father for working your will in our lives in our church in our country, and in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.